Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Virginia Willis, and my most recent cookbook is Secrets of the Southern Table, a food lover's tour of the global south. This cookbook was a real education for me. In the foreword, Sean Brock wrote, There is a misconception around the world that Southern food is a singular cuisine. Explain that statement. Well, I think if uh, to what Sean does, he sort of expounds on the fact that the South is roughly one million square miles. And so I, I really, what, what he wrote in terms of we don't say I love European food, um, I, I think that that application applies to the South, that that same sort of philosophy would apply to the South. The, the cuisine, the coastal cuisine of Louisiana is tremendously different from the coastal cuisine of Florida or the low country, or Texas, you know. So this southern food, when people say southern food or southern cuisine, there's actually many sort of pockets and micro pockets throughout the South. In terms of the pockets and micro pockets, describe the differences between, let's say, the food in Appalachia to coastal Carolina to the Gulf. So the food of Appalachia would be more of obviously mountain cuisine. So corn grows there. Um, it's not a great area for grain, so there would be less wheat production. Um, the soil is rocky and it's mountainous. Um, it's it's a it's a poor poor part of the country. It always has been. Um, the cuisine of the Deep South, of course, that's traditionally a long time ago would have been the plantations and cotton, um, but it's a huge expanses of land for crops. And then, of course, the coastal cuisines, the various different types of coastal cuisines, um, would have heavily relied upon seafood. Um, so each, each sort of geographic area, um, by what grows in the region, sort of dictates what the food of that region is. You wrote, memory shapes the story of our lives and allows us to interact with the world. I adore the visual of your grandmother, Louise, sitting mm. you in one compartment of her double-sided <laughs> steel sink while she shelled yeah. peas or snap beans in her kitchen with blue and white gingham curtains. Which I, know, I you love. can't paint a better picture, right? I mean, it's just... <laughs> I know. So how did this memory shape your life? Well, my earliest memories are being in the kitchen with my grandmother and with my mother, um, my grandfather. I mean, really, truly, like I was three years old when my family moved from Georgia to Louisiana, which also had tremendous influence. Um, the, the best times of my life have sort of been in the kitchen. That's always been what grounded me, what intrigued me, what, incite, what excited me. Um, and so, you know, that, that kitchen... My grandmother and grandfather's kitchen, those hard of pine walls and the linoleum floor and the gingham um, checkered curtains, um, that is just, it really distills it for me about like where my love of food and cooking started. I love that. I want to go there right now. The kitchen sounds mm -hmm. so cute. <laughs> it was. She had it packed full. It was this tidy little kitchen with this little eat-in table for the two of them. And when I was a little girl, there were, um, my, my sister and I both had stools that sort of stuck, you know, were kept underneath the table that, that we would pull out so the, the two adults and the two children could, could, could sit and eat there. And of course we had a dining room, but, um, you know, those, uh, you know, I just remember 
um, you know, breakfast, grits for breakfast. And then in the summertime, my grandfather would bring in tomatoes and my grandmother would, you know, chop up fresh tomatoes for the top of the grits. So it really just truly, I think my mouth is watering right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the questions of ownership of Southern cooking. We mm-hmm. often hear about the nameless black women who help mold Southern cuisine, but talk about the nameless, faceless, poor white women that we don't really hear about. Yeah, well, it's it's so it's so complicated and it's so heavy and um, it really it is still, you know, it's only been a couple hundred years since the Civil War, right? I mean, in the in the scope of things, it just hasn't been that long. Um, and of course, the Jim Crow, like you know, uh, African Americans have been been kept sort of subjugated for for you know for the two hundred years since then. But in terms of uh, the ownership and the faceless white women, one thing to consider is that um, there really has always been a 1%. I mean, we've, we've sort of reflected upon that more recently with the, the crash a couple years ago and such, but there really has sort of been always this 1%. And so in the South, there's this perception of great plantations and, um, you know, people own, owning multiple slaves. And, and this was true, and this was also part of the one percent. So, there, there, there was undoubtedly a system that that kept different classes and cultures in place. And I'm actually reading this really sort of academic book called Masterless Men, and it's about poor whites in the antebellum South. And um, because slavery existed, there really wasn't a working white class. Um, because of course there was slavery, and so that was uh, you know te- technically free, if that makes any sense. I mean, other than the the cost of the person, so it's it's truly complicated. Um, but one thing that 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 does come back is that you know there there has always been poverty um, in the South uh, for a great many of the people, um, both black and white included. And so one of the things that I like to take into consideration or I want us to start taking into consideration with our dialogue is is addressing and understanding the implications of slavery, but also understanding the implications that that there were there were poor whites as well that didn't have slaves and so there always has been this sort of faceless women cooking food for people. Why have we never heard that story? Like to me I'm sitting here thinking, why yeah well yes. There were white people who were out of work because of slavery. It's really, well, I, you know, the thing is, is I don't think that we've actually come to grips as a country with the fact that we were proponents of slavery for centuries. And, yeah. and, it, and it, it did live and exist in the South for far longer than it did in the North. But let's not kid ourselves. Uh, you know, there was slavery in the Northeast when the, when the colonies were founded. And um, there was a tremendous slave trade between the Caribbean and salt cod in New England and, um, and, and Europe. So I feel like that's part of the complication. We, we really, in this day and age, it's hard for us to sort of grasp the fact that the United States is so deeply involved with slavery for so long, for centuries, for truly for centuries. And it did last longer in the South, and it did become, um, you know, it was the primary instigation for the Civil War. Um, But, you know, I have an expression like the truth is always in the middle. Um, 
it's usually not one side or the other. Uh, the truth is always somewhere in between. And, and I feel like that's just part of it. Like we, we're, st- we're still trying to figure it out. I feel it's just part of my, um, my, my organic desire as mm-hmm. a Southerner and a food person and a cook to try to figure out some of these questions. And then also just my, my, my place as a person, yep. right? This is a person. Like, how does this, how does this happen? How does this play out? How does this affect people's lives? I mean, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a tumultuous time. The largest population of Vietnamese in the United States outside of California is Houston. Talk a little bit about the Vietnamese shrimpers in Texas. So there, that, that is such a fascinating story because when I tell people that there are more Vietnamese in Houston than anywhere outside, the, anywhere outside of California in the United States, people are, their eyes just pop up. You know, people think Houston, Texas, and cowboys are oil, right? They, uh, um, you know, some people that are a little bit more uh, geographically aware might realize that it's on actually pretty close to the coast and um, there's a seafooding industry. But um, essentially, after the Vietnam War, when there were a bunch of dis- when the, the Vietnamese were displaced and there was this humanitarian crisis, the UN um, placed these refugees, Vietnamese refugees, they were sort of unceremoniously called the boat people. Um, uh, the UN placed them in different places and uh, throughout the world, and uh, Texas was one of them. And so one of the things that's so fascinating there is that the Vietnamese came in. Of course, the Vietnam, Vietnam has two coasts. It's a, it's a seafood-faring, seafood, seafaring country. Um, and so the Vietnamese entered the fishing and shrimping industry. And, and in my research, I learned that, of course, um, sort of history repeats itself time and time again. When a new population moves into an area and they start taking the jobs, then the dominant population um, reacts. And the dominant population being white shrimpers in, in Houston and Galveston and in the area, um, it, it became uh, sort of like a battle zone. And the KKK protested and became involved. And um, it was it was fraught, you know, it was, uh, ships were burned and shots were fired and all these things. And so how does that play into my cookbook? Um, I felt like it was, it's important to tell those stories too. I mean, Southern food isn't solely, you know, dewy eyed women with gingham aprons, right. Yeah. Or, you know, all these things. So there's, there's a, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. And if you love something or you love a place or you love someone, you love it all. I mean, I, you know, or have to acknowledge it all. So I wanted to tell that story. And then, but what has also happened, there's this sort of twofold realization that I had. <clears throat> the Vietnamese culture is still fairly closed. I mean, it was only like 40 years ago. So in, in time, that's not much time. So my goal to visit visiting Galveston in the Houston area was to try to talk to Vietnamese shrimpers and to talk to them about their experience. And I, I gave it my, you know, best journalistic shot and uh, I couldn't get anyone to talk to me. Really? I couldn't get anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I couldn't, uh, I contacted the Texas Seafood Marketing Association and part of the Department of Agriculture and asked uh, for assistance getting me in touch with the Vietnamese shrimpermen. They had nobody, and uh, it was it was eye opening. It was it was it was really um, 
it was a lesson, right? It's like only 40 years later and this community is still pretty closed. Um, literally found myself like wandering the docks, uh, like walking into a seafood, a clearly Vietnamese owned seafood company. Um, and they're like, oh, we're busy. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'll wait. No, we're busy and we're going to be busy, you know? And I just, um, met a gentleman, uh, mending nets and asked him if we could take his photograph. And he said, no. Um, he didn't mind his back being shown, but he didn't want to be a part of the story. So it was sort of disheartening on that end. And, and, and then we did meet some, uh, young, uh, 20, early 20, something sort of, uh, Vietnamese kids that are probably third generation now, maybe second, third generation. And they were like, hey, yeah, you can take our picture. So they were, one of them was their brothers, and one was sort of like a, a version of like a Vietnamese Ken, right? Ken doll, you know, Ken? Yeah. Uh, super clean cut and T-shirt and buff and clearly works out and, uh, you know, just really clean cut. And his brother <clears throat> was sort of the Johnny Depp of Viet- Vietnamese culture. He was great, <laughs> you know, with the, uh, I mean, seriously, it's like somewhere between Johnny Depp and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean kind of Keith Richards look. Um, and they had, they were very open and wanted, they were, would talk to us and had no problem. So I feel like the tide will turn, right? Eventually, you know, assimilation does happen. It just takes a while. Um, and then the only thing I'd say lastly to that is that, Open or closed, the presence of the, so many Vietnamese in the Houston area has definitely affected the local food and culture. Um, it, it's just present. You know, we went to a place and uh, to eat, and they had um, they called them Vietnamese fajitas because everyone, of course, knows fajitas, but there were Vietnamese fajitas, but it wasn't a fajita at all. It was it was a Vietnamese rice paper wraps, right? You know. Um, and lots of restaurants have Vietnamese influences throughout. So, um, it's taken, it's taken a while, but the presence of the Vietnamese in Texas is definitely affecting the local foodways there. And I think I read in the book that they call it Viet Tex. Yeah. Yeah. There's a Viet Tex. And then of course there's a, there, there are Vietnamese all along the Gulf because they didn't just sort of stay in Texas. They've moved to Louisiana and there's Vietnamese in Mississippi and Alabama as well. And so in Louisiana, there's a Viet Cajun. Oh my gosh. It's sort of this incredible mashup wow. of like the Creole spices and the Southeast Asian spices with like ginger and lemongrass and, and, and garlic. Um, and it's this incredible um, mashups or fusions or just this natural evolution of what Southern food really is. In addition to the recipes in each chapter, you have two essays about a farmer, catcher, harvester, or maker. One that caught my eye was Many Fold Farm. Talk a bit about Ross and Rebecca Williams, the new face of farming, and their hurdles with a small farm. Oh, it's just sort of amazing. So my, my goal of this book was to present this rich and diverse South. And so my goal was also to present the unexpected. So for example, in Georgia, the average farmer is a 57-year-old white male. I don't have any problems with 57-year-old white men, and I haven't one bit. But what I wanted to do is to not feature that, right? Not to feature that man, to feature someone else. So Ross and Rebecca are this 
young couple. They've been you know, high school sweethearts, stayed together through college, have purposely chosen this region and Palmetto, which is 30, 45 minutes tops from Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson, the world's busiest airport. But you could be, it's completely rural, tranquil, uh, quiet countryside, only 30 minutes away from Atlanta. Um, and they have chosen this region because um, there's some pretty strict zoning laws that have been in, have been, been put into place um, by local governance um, to restrict sprawl. Uh, Atlanta has a ton of sprawl, like in all directions. And, you know, big box stores and malls and traffic, traffic, traffic. We've got terrible traffic in Atlanta. Um, so Ross and Rebecca started with chickens and then has, have, have moved to goat cheese and different sheep's milk cheeses, um, winning awards fast. Uh, but when I went and interviewed them, shortly thereafter, they had to put paws on the farm because um, the challenges that farmers face, right? Uh, they wanted to continue making this beautiful award-winning cheese, but to scale up, they would have had to have imported sheep's milk from the Midwest. And it sort of flew in the face of their values. Um, so farming, you know, there's so many different considerations in farming. Um, and the first one that's, of course, you can be sustainable, but if it's not economically sustainable, it's not sustainable at all. Um, and, and so that's sort of where it was left, that they're hitting pause for a bit so they can sort of regroup and figure out what they're doing. Then I read about the gospel of ham, Nancy Newsom. <laughs> Newsom's country hams. Describe the country hams that she makes. Oh, my God. I love Miss Nancy. She is just amazing. So she's this sort of powerhouse as a woman. And the ham is like nothing you've ever tasted before. It's this amazing. Um, so it would be for for. Folks that aren't familiar with country ham, country ham is uh, a traditional means of preservation that's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's been was it's been long practiced in Europe, and then those traditions came to um, the South, and it primarily they are, they are hams are salted, and in the United States, and specifically sort of like in Appalachia and in the mountains, um, they were salted and smoked. Um, so there's like a twofold uh, process because it's so hot in the South. You know, we have to have this like extra, extra um, le- layer, layer of preservation. But Nancy's hams are this amazing, um, uh, salty and sweet and intensely savory and um, just absolutely incredible. And it would be similar to one of the finest Parma hams from prosciutto hams from Parma. Um, when sliced really thinly, it's exactly the same sort of quality as prosciutto. How did ham become a secret of the Southern table? So pig pig is the meat of the South. Um, you know, if you kind of think about it, like how did that happen? Because there's these large expanses, and in Texas, definitely beef is king, and there are cattle raised in the South. Um, but for much of the South. The, these wide expanses would not have been used for pasture land. They would have been used for crops, um, for growing soybeans or cotton or corn or, or whatever it is. Um, so pig, pigs have long been 
um, sort of the, the 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 meat that sustained the South. Um, and then, of course, uh, ham would uh, cured ham um, would be a, a sort of a natural extension of that. You know, the hams would be the pigs would be raised uh, throughout the year, and then there would be a hog killing in the fall. Um, of course, when it got cooler, so that would be the perfect time to sort of cure the hams um, and and put them in the smokehouse and um, and and so that there would be meat for the winter time. Um, so ham is a, a very in, integral part of southern food throughout the south you know so i say that southern food is different cuisines um southern uh food throughout the south and involves ham what is one southern dish that you make that immediately brings you back to growing up in the south there's so many right like okra i literally have an okra pendant around my neck um i think uh, okra is a sort of aggressively southern vegetable it primarily grows in the south but if I were to be really truthfully honest, even though I'm trying to present all these different uh, recipes from the South, um, from different cultures, I, I think that, that biscuits are probably um, the, the, the food that takes me back, um, going back to that gingham curtain in that kitchen at my grandmother's. <laughs> I've been making biscuits since I was three years old in that kitchen. So um, that is uh, firmly burned into my memory. You wrote in the back of the cookbook, as we drove across 11 states, the radio sat silent for hours upon hours as we examined our thoughts and beliefs regarding our homeland, perused its difficult past, contemplated its complicated current situation, and voiced our hopes for its future. Was there one person you met traveling while researching your cookbook along the way that made a huge impression on you? I can't truly weigh like one experience more than the other because it really was a sort of journey of a lifetime and, um, and, and pulling out one person I think would be too problematic because, uh, I, I met, I had so many different voices. Um, I might point towards Glenn Roberts at Anson Mills because I think that what he is doing is, is, is really incredible. Um, many people may have heard of Anson Mills. It's just, they've become sort of the darling of chefs in the past, you know, decade or so. And uh, but Glenn is a seed saver, and so what he's doing sort of uh, extends past um, just the food of the South. He's he's sort of saving the world, um, which is which is obviously tremendous. But there have been so many um, seeds lost. There's been s- such a uh, impediment to seed diversity, and Glenn is famous for uh, grits and and Carolina gold rice, but He's actually bringing back all these heirloom breeds and heritage breeds that have sort of um, almost fallen off the face of the earth. And he's working with, you know, Indian tribes and and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, like bringing back, you know, um, heirloom corn from colonial times there. So he's, I think, indicative of of this really sort of life-changing things that are happening around Southern food that extend past Southern food. Last night for dinner, I made your recipe for catfish mull down on page 203. Yum. Nothing <laughs> knocks my socks off more than a simple, delicious dish, and this blew me away. Describe this old-fashioned dish and give us a little background on your Uncle Marshall, the fishing guide. Yeah, okay. So Uncle Marshall uh, was a river guide, and uh, so... Um, 
I don't know. I mean, there's the work, be, working on the river has always been sort of a rough neck, right? A, a, a rough position. I mean, you know, if you think about the bars were on the river and the gambling houses were on the river and all that. I don't know anything about Uncle Marshall doing that, but I do know that uh, he was sort of perceived as this sort of um, character, right? Uh, um, and he would take people fishing. And um, so I'm not certain that he had it, but a mull down. Uh, was sort of a catfish stew, catfish and potatoes, um, more of like a stew, and it was just like would have been put into a, a Dutch oven and sort of layered and cooked and potatoes and catfish and uh, salt pork or something like that, maybe a little bit of ketchup or something. Um, and I've sort of turned it, uh, sort of chefed it up a bit, uh, for lack of a better word, um, with uh, cream and potatoes and and, um, and and catfish, and it just sort of becomes a sort of really rich, um, but undeniably simple and satisfying um, supper. And of course, catfish are uh, native to the South. There are there are lots of catfish that live in our rivers and. Um, and and in Mississippi now is a, a big state for for uh, raising um, farm raised catfish. Um, so catfish is a, a very uh, southern fish for the inner states for the uh, for the um, for the inland, um, not not the coast, not the the ocean. But uh, catfish is a super southern fish. I love catfish. This dish was so darn good, and it only has four ingredients. My philosophy with food in general is to just use really good ingredients and do as little to it as possible to mess it up. You know, just trust the ingredient and honor the ingredient. So, and that comes from not sort of some recent chef-driven revelation. You know, my grandfather had a garden. My mother and father, we had a garden my whole entire life. We ate summer squash in season. We ate eggplant in season. We ate okra in season. We, We ate collard greens in season. Um, you know, we eat sweet potatoes. I mean, everything was in season and it, it wasn't, it wasn't some sort of, you know, highfalutin thing. It was just what it was. And so, uh, you know, when you, when you're dealing with something that's like fresh out of the garden, not for a week in a produce department or a week and a half in a produce department, um, it just tastes so much better. So, Before we wrap up, one last little story I have to tell you. In the 90s, I was a cookbook publicist in Kansas City. You'll see where this is going. Uh And Uh desperately wanted to move out of Kansas City to work with cookbooks on a larger scale. And it Uh was a no-brainer to contact the absolute pinnacle of cookbook publicity at that time, which was Lisa Eckes. (laughs) <laughs> so she said she would talk to me if I wanted to come to Massachusetts, but I really wanted to move to New York City. So I was bummed uh-huh. that I never got the chance to meet her, and I never got the chance to learn from her. So fast uh-huh. forward, I was pleasantly surprised to see her name mentioned in the back of your cookbook. Talk yeah. a little bit about Lisa Eckes for the cookbook lovers who may not know her name. Uh, so... Um well, I first have to divulge that Lisa is my, my partner. So she and yes. I, she was first my agent, and then we became friends. And then it was like, oh, wow, hey. <laughs> I love and that. And so we've been together. Yeah, we fell in love. And uh, she, um, gosh, I have such a smile on my face right now. I'm so glad. Um, 
Now, Lisa has been in uh, the business of cookbooks and publishing and all things culinary for roughly 35 years. When I chose to send her my, my, the book proposal for Bon Appetit, y'all, which was my first book that came out 10 years ago, um, I knew her to be the best in the business. I mean, that was just sort of uh, from me being in food for roughly uh, 25 years now. Um, I, at the time, you know, 15, 10 years ago, I was like, well, if I'm going to get an agent, I want it to be Lisa Eckes. Yeah. So I sent her my proposal and with an exclusive and said, uh, you're the only agent I'm sending it to. Um, you know, I'll give you six to eight weeks before I take it out anywhere else. Like, so she has worked with Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and Marcella Hazan and uh, Amanda Hesser from 252 and, uh, you know, and on and on and on. And it's, it's just sort of comical when we go to a, a bookstore and she's like, oh, I worked on that book. Oh, wait, I worked on that book. Or, you know, and so... Um, so she she is a sort of a behind the scenes person that has had a tremendous amount to do with uh, food and and cookbook publishing uh, for the the past three decades. She's, and I love her. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. So for season four of Cookery by the Book podcast, I'm kicking off a new segment called My Last Meal. If you had uh, to place an order for your last meal on earth, what would it be? I've been able to enjoy and taste and uh, have so many crazy different things from, you know, from uh, food at the bazaar in Turkey to handmade Italian pasta to foie gras in France. I mean, I, I, I feel very fortunate about my life and my travels. And, you know, I guess at the end of the day, if I were to say that, you know, what I would want for my last meal, it would probably involve, you know, fried chicken and um, biscuits and butter beans because that's the, that's my comfort food. You know, that's the food of my people. And that's what I grew up with. And hopefully I won't be putting in that order anytime soon. Definitely not. (laughs) Where can we find you on the web and social media? Oh, awesome. Well, thank you, Susie. Um, so people can find out probably more than they ever wanted to know by going to virginiawillis.com. And at the top of that page, at the homepage, there are links to all of my social, but essentially it's uh, at Virginia Willis for Twitter and Instagram and all that. But if they go to virginiawillis.com, they'll be able to um, find my books and find out, find my blog and social media and all that kind of good stuff and events that I'll be doing throughout the year. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Virginia, for taking us on a food lover's tour of the global South. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much. And I'd say Susie Bon Appetit, y'all. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate and review Cookery by the Book. You can also follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. Thanks for listening. <laughs>